Uh, to everyone, I'm Bernard Hickey. This is another Hoon, New Zealand over the horizon. Fantastic to have you all and Peter Bale. Great to great Hi, to Bernard. hear you again, Peter. Hi, Bernard. It's very kind of Tim to help us with our ridiculous startup problems and Jonathan and Jay. Yeah. Are saying thank you very much. Yes. And there's, oddly, there's quite a few hundred people downloading this each week. On the, pl- on the podcast platform, right, Bernard? That's right. Over 200 in the last week and also more than 3,000 people who read the text that went with it. So we're getting on a roll here. It's it's great. Terrific. And, it's and still thanks. an experiment. And just, just to remind everybody that we are, in fact, podcasting it as well. That's right. So, recording it. Sorry, recording it for a podcast. That's right. So... Um, I'm going to avoid swear words, but uh, you're all welcome to. <laughs> you're all welcome to. Uh, and of course, if you want to do the reading thing, Peter has a version of this with much with excellent links to full articles and things. That's in the spin-off, in particular, a newsletter on World News for the spin-off. Peter, so what did you concentrate on this week in your, um, well, your column? I did a I did a slightly different thing than I than I normally do, and I it was because I was enormously struck by a piece in the Atlantic magazine from a rather remarkable former New Yorker reporter who's now at the Atlantic called George Parker, a Packer rather. And he's one of those irritating people who writes uh, some of the best books that I've ever read, like a recent one on Richard Holbrook, the former former U.S. diplomat. And it was a sort of treatise. It was a real essay. And it is, in fact, an extract from, from his latest book. And it's essentially talking about four tribes in the United States. And the, re- the reason I brought, brought it up is because, you know, we sometimes get a bit annoyed about the states. And one of the things that I mentioned in the in the piece was a Pew report last week. It said that only 42% of New Zealanders have a positive view of the United States, and that compares with 77% of South Koreans. So I, th- I think we there, there is a certain amount of scepticism about it and a certain amount of sense that, particularly after the Trump era, that we, that we maybe no longer look to the United States quite the way we did. Now, what's interesting about that, of course, is that we, we do look to the United States for entertainment, technology, media, and, and political trends, and no more so in political trends than in this Trump era where we've seen the explosion of um, populism, which he's manipulated extraordinary, extraordinarily. And, and George really argues that there are he sees four agendas or four narratives, or as I've described them, four tribes. One is the, the Free America group, which is libertarian, very tuned into Trump, brings in Christians, anti-communists, and it's very much the prevailing think sort of course of thought in the Republican Party. And one of the interesting aspects to that is it's it's incredibly dependent on the beliefs of a woman called Anne Rand, which many people will know, the, a, a book called The Fountainhead, various others. She had a kind of self-interest and selfishness doctrine, which had a re- remarkable number of adherents and still does. Alan Greenspan was an acolyte of hers, the former head of the head of the Fed. There, if you talk there to have people, also been suggestions that they were more than just friends. That's right. Yeah, no, they shagged, I think, is, is, is highly likely. And she was actually remarkably attractive and certainly a very compelling person. If you look across Silicon Valley, there are people like Peter Thiel, Jimmy Wales from Wikipedia, who have said just how big an influence Anne Rand is on their lives. So I think it was really interesting that George George Packer called her out as a, as a sort of, you know, the, the doctrine of selfishness is a really remarkable thing because you can believe that you are entitled to what you've achieved and that you have no common interest with others. And that's pretty much what she, what she, what she said, that essentially that the, you know, there were strong people who deserve to be followed and, and to achieve. And that it really fits into the kind of Silicon Valley tech pro tech bro influence. The, uh, the second category is the kind of d- Democrat reverse of that, which is smart America. And, and George argues that Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, 
and certainly Barack Obama were of the silk, that they were just a bit too smart for their own good. They became perceived as an elite and therefore isolated from the rest of, from the, rest of the United States. The third one is the real America, which is, he thinks, is started by Sarah Palin and is all about the real people of America, the really hardworking people. And I suspect, and, and he argues, that that predominantly means hardworking white people. And of course, they slipped into Trump as well. The is the just America, which is the idea. It's the it, it's the idea, the kind of Louis Brandeis, former Supreme Court idea, that sunlight is the best, best disinfectant, and that the United States has a wonderful justice system and needs to be defended and can constantly improve. I, mean, I think Lincoln put it, phrased it as Abraham Lincoln phrased it as um, being focused on the better angels of ourselves rather than the rather than the bad angels of ourselves or the worst angels of ourselves. So it's a very interesting kind of treatise you can use look at my newsletter or it's on the atlantic uh, and his book is coming i think the, the difficulty with it is of course is the irreconcilability of those four narratives and and uh, you know we we don't we, we kind of see that at the moment that you've got joe biden trying to tie people together but there is no appetite for for bipartisanship really in the united states you wonder if um it is possible to reconcile these tribes together when the amount of sort of 30, 40 years of these what they call culture wars have been going on between mm. various tribes. And also, when you consider the massive increase in inequality that's happened over the last 20 or 30 years, where people can effectively cordon themselves off from the others by you know having the right security guards or being in the right filter bubbles on the internet, you have to think that the, the internet, Facebook, Twitter and the rest – have acted like a big confirmation bias engine, which has pushed Absolutely they have. The, yeah. Yeah, pushed these four tribes even further apart. And yeah, it's so binary, isn't it? The conversations are so binary, and very few people are asking for thoughts. They're, they're, they're making assertions. That's right, and they're always looking for people to effectively congratulate them on their own views or to congratulate mm. others that have the same views as yourself. And after a while, right. you, you begin to think that you're right and everyone else is wrong. And in fact, there's only one reality and it's yours. That's why I'm, yeah. I'm just constantly stunned when I see the uh, assertions and the discussions that you see on the likes of um, Fox and, of course, the other uh, right-wing networks where literally you can say black is white or white is black and believe it and look like you really believe it. And, mm, and mm, that there are no, enough absolutely. people around you saying you're right to, to continue on in this belief. And the, the big lie, of course, is the, the election result, which is fundamental to the, to the whole you know, yeah, reason well, why democracies work. Yeah, it's interesting you should bring that up because a, 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 a journalist who I really respect, Anne Applebaum, Applebaum, who also writes at the, at the Atlantic, has published a piece today. And, and it's something I've mentioned in previous newsletters, and so it's not you know, totally new information, but the way not just autocratic regimes such as you know, Myanmar have picked up the Trump stop the steal thing. I mean, the, the, the argument that the generals made for taking over in, in Yangon was incredibly similar to the whole, you know, this has been a fraudulent election. And of course, you've seen Benjamin Netanyahu essentially say the same thing, that the new coalition in Israel, not, not so much that the vote was stolen, but that the coalition is a fake and uh, bogus coalition, which is built on lies. But Anne, Anne really argues in, this, in another piece in the, in the Atlantic, that this is this kind of destruction of democracy in the greatest center of democracy 
is toxic and pervasive. You've got Keiko Fujimori, the, the daughter of the pr- former Peruvian president, essentially saying she's not, she's refusing to recognize the results. So it's become a kind of pattern of behavior, which um, I think is incredibly dangerous for, for democracy worldwide. And that's certainly the argument she makes. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think that the world's longest running greatest democracy, America, has managed to fend off these various challenges over centuries. You know, there's been various points in America's history, the Civil War, certainly at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, when the political mm. system was completely captured by the, the the big business interests. But eventually they were beaten back and that corruption Ended. You've had a couple of corrupt presidents before uh, Trump. From memory, Coolidge was dodgiest, as <laughs> yeah. hell. And Andrew ja- Andrew Jackson is the one who's often compared with Trump. Yeah, and but it's just it is this ability now for this for this sort of problem, if you like, or cancer, if you like, to spread across the world. Particularly, you know, when you think about the way the United States used to conduct its foreign policy was very much along the lines of of theoretically spreading democracy. Yeah, and we had a big set piece this week with the, not so much clash, but the meeting of, you know, the, the head of the free world, so to speak, Joe Biden, versus, I'm not sure, quite sure he's the head of the autocratic world, but he's certainly the, the oldest, wiliest, <laughs> most, yeah. uh, most sinister of the lot, although uh, President Xi Jinping in China, you'd have to argue, is the most um, powerful and successful. But tell us what you thought of the, the Putin. Yeah, well, I think that there's, there's some argument, and I think it's a, a, a sort of a valid one, that Putin got exactly what he wanted, which was the recognition that he still matters. And of course, he does matter. He, you know, he has nuclear weapons. He's shown he has the ability to interfere in almost everything. But what, what I found so extraordinary, or multiply extraordinary, if you like, was his use of a fantastic communist era concept called whataboutism, where you come up, you know, you know, you do something bad and you say, well, that's, you know, oh, it, it's fine for me to do it because you've just done something bad. And of course, his ones were absolutely extraordinary. He compared the attempted assassination of, of Alexei Navalny and said that the uh, woman who was shot by the police officer on January the 6th in the capital, that that was an example of assassination and therefore the United States was just as bad. And he used an absolutely fabulous um, quote. This was this was actually uh, two days before the, the a couple of days before the Biden meeting. And he said, "We have a saying in Russia: don't be mad at the mirror if you are." And he's come out with a whole bunch of these of these sort of weird truisms. One of the funniest things is he couldn't bring himself to say, and he had never has the, to say the name of Alexei Navalny. He calls him that person. So he's now become this kind of Valdemort person who should, who shall not be named. And essentially Putin is saying, I won't do him the honor of naming him. I will not, as the Russian president, show him the respect of, of, of naming him. And he's also essentially, in a very cynical way, said he, he can't guarantee his safety in prison because prison has poor conditions. He also said that Russia, as quote, sorry, we don't have this kind of habit of assassinating anybody, which will be news, of course, given the murder of Alexander Litvinenko some years ago with Pelot and the attempted murder of the Skripals, the father and daughter. The father was a former secret agent, um, and they attempted to murder him with Novichok, which is what they used against against Navalny as well. So it is an absolutely extraordinary set of sort of pirouettes that you have to do when you're Putin, and that he does, he does without batting an eyelid, without raising breath. So I think he, I think he pretty much got what he wanted out of it, Bernard. Biden, you know, they, they they talked about there being no friendship, but there being at least an understanding, and they used the, the usual that the talks were constructive. I mean, there there is progress on nuclear weapons negotiations or nuclear weapons restraint, which had been thrown away, thrown out by Trump. Um, 
But beyond that, also Trump, uh, Putin completely denied that there was a problem with cyber attacks from Russia and said that they actually originated from Canada and the United States. So, you know, if you when you're dealing with somebody who can who can say that black is white quite like that is it's pretty extraordinary, makes it rather difficult diplomatically. And he also has an interesting uh, turn of phrase sometimes. He, he, he is a, obviously a very sh- sharp character, but he used this mm. phrase which really captured the attention of the, the, meme, the memeifiers <laughs> online, mm. where he used a phrase that Tolstoy is reported to have said at one yeah. point, quote, there is no happiness in life, only a mirage of it on the horizon. Yep. And he was talking about whether there was any hope, essentially saying, you know, we're all bad. It's always going to end badly. Just get used to it. Sit back and enjoy it as best you can. <laughs> just... That's right. That's right. He also said, this was a good because some, some reporter I said mentioned her own nine-year-old child in her question, which was a bit weird, but I mean, she was trying to make an emotional connection to someone who really doesn't have emotions. And he said, you've got to look around and think to yourself, it's a wonderful world. So he's you know, quoting Louis Armstrong there. <laughs> the grown-ups, the grown-ups, the adults, leaders of the two major countries, two major nuclear powers are meeting. And they're trying to make the world a safer place, a secure place, a prospering place to live for many people from across the globe. So he can at least adopt a sort of quasi-statesman-like approach at various times. Yes, we can. Thank you. You did your your own podcast this week with the spin-off and a a piece. What were you getting into? I I assume you looked at inflation and housing. Well, actually, not this week. We've been um, pretty focused on the climate change report still, Mm. and in the middle of winter, it occurred to me to have a look at how well equipped our houses are for climate change, because the Mm -hmm. climate commission is saying that we need to reduce the amount of energy demand from our houses, particularly our new houses, by 35% within the next 15 years. And for our existing mm-hmm. houses, we have to do that by 6%, which um, doesn't sound too much. But when you talk to the experts, and I did, who look at um, how much energy houses use and whether we're changing the building code, changing our building practices, using different materials, and of course having our houses in different places, closer to public mm. transport, less dependent on a three-car garage. Smaller, for example, she was saying, this is Philippa Howden-Chapman, who is the, who's really written the book on energy use in houses and making sure they're healthy, and she's also a director of Kind Order. She was saying that at the moment, there's no way we're going to get to that target that the Climate Commission mm. has put out, and that there's a real market failure, but also a failure of the combination of government and the private sector to properly analyse the true costs and benefits of having warm, dry, energy-efficient yeah. home. If only we could find some mechanisms to uh, ensure people took that into account when they make a decision, because uh, like any long-term capital decision, you're embedding costs, and in this case, embedding carbon emissions. And if you could but find... But isn't, isn't this just a perpetual neglect that's been in New Zealand probably since at least the war, where, I mean, we've talked about the she'll be right philosophy, but it's, we just haven't, you know, Auckland houses, older houses, not, not that old, are damp and cold in a city that has, you know, quite high humidity, but isn't really that cold. And therefore, they're presumably quite predominantly quite deeply energy inefficient. Yeah, there's a lot of culture and history in this, particularly mm. around how we built our first houses. Basically, we cut down the forests, carved them up into yeah, boards, and yeah. slapped them together. Yeah. Um, we never really got into the um, 
a business of building brick homes because it was simply cheaper to do it with wood and always has been, particularly once we got our exotics up and running. And then for a long time, uh, right up until the um, 2000s, our electricity was relatively cheap because effectively it was all state-owned and effective subsidy was given to consumers by uh, giving cheap electricity. Then we had the electricity market reforms and most of the electricity sector was privatised and so we moved to a market price, which you can debate about whether that is the it reflects the true price of um, producing electricity, but it meant a an effective trebling of the cost of electricity for mm. consumers. And so people who previously would just have three or four of those wearing electric fan heaters pumping heat into a, uh, yeah. a, a an effective leaky, leaky room now can't afford it. And so we've had to essentially regulate to deal with a market failure by telling landlords at least that they have to insulate ceilings and underfloor and put heat pumps in. The problem here, of course, is that once you've built a house, yes, you can refit it somewhat and you can make it more comfortable and and less inefficient. But your best is to do it properly from the start. And the rest of the world, particularly in places where you really obviously have to uh, make it as um, warm and as efficient as possible simply because it's so freaking cold. Here you can sort of get away f- get away with it for mm. up until a mm. couple of months of the year. And, uh, of course, the combination of quite a damp place, and particularly, you know, Auckland, there's a lot of sweeping showers that go across, and in winter, the combination of not that cold but plenty of wetness and cold enough at night, particularly in winter, the combination is just a mould machine. And of course, the, yeah, yeah. the whole we, we end up dealing with the symptoms. There's so many things in New Zealand, it seems we end up dealing with the symptoms rather than the, the, the than, than doing things right from the beginning. That's than, right. Than having, you know, is, is, is this a failure? Of course, there's also a tendency to blame everything on the government as well. But, you know, there has to be, there has to be a, a difference in approach in these things. Everything, otherwise, everything is just fixing, fixing, fixing a, whether it's, you know, mouldy houses and mouldy schools. You know, this is this is a failure, a failure somewhere along the line of regulation, as was the leaky building problem. That's right, and we deregulated our building industry in the 1990s and 2000s, thinking that getting mm. regulation out was a, always a good idea. When in fact, mm. we embedded in some market failures, and we're now having to retrofit our system for that. Mm. And a lot of work has to be done, particularly around the building code. And convincing people that um, spending a bit more on your house now will save you a lot more money later on. The problem, as well, is That's that if you can afford a house, of course. Exactly. Yeah. The problem is as well now is that when you make an investment in a in a house, and in making the house a much nicer place to live, you're having to compete with other uses for that money. Ironically, buying mm-hmm. other houses mm-hmm. that you can rent out. And when you have an asset which is supposed to provide a service, warm, dry house, which is actually a financial asset as well, you start to make decisions with that asset that are financial decisions, not necessarily decisions about providing a service from it. And that's the the real problem here is that the true cost of housing is not borne by the homeowner. In many cases, the true cost Mm. of bad housing is going to be borne by the state in terms of higher public health yeah. costs, lower productivity, lower taxes from GST and income taxes, a whole bunch of people take sick days, all these kids end up in the hospital with preventable diseases, chest infections, rheumatic it fever. It sounds like a or, banana republic firm. It sounds like Fiji. Yeah, but sadly, um, this no, week we got, a banana no, yeah. we got confirmation this week 
that our houses are the um, most expensive and fastest growing in the world in terms of prices. And in fact, since the beginning of COVID, our national housing stock has risen in value in net terms, so taking away the extra mortgages that have gone in, the mm-hmm. equity in our houses has risen by $319 billion since the beginning of COVID. That's actually the same as... Some, something someone's doing really well out of that. Yeah, anyone is, is that so, Is that saving... So just, just, I, didn't, I, I raised the issues of, of inflation, so I mean, we've got some, some inflationary signals in the US. You've been, you've been very sceptical about the idea of inflation coming here, but people are talking about interest rates going up and so on. What, what, I mean... What's going to happen here? Could that could could this could that be what causes all this to come to a screeching halt? Yeah, we start getting inflation back in New Zealand. Yeah, that's that's the worry that people have that the inflation will come back and therefore the Reserve Bank will have to put up interest rates from mm. currently the official cash rates 025 percent, and you would see mortgage rates, which currently are around about two percent. You can get under two percent when you buy when you build a new house now. That 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 might jump up to say four percent. Now, a lot of people are worried that as soon as interest rates uh, double, that you know there'd be all these people who'd who'd be wiped out, they'd lose their equity. Yeah, they because their affordability may disappear, right? Yep, yep. And they what they um, can afford at two percent may be very different from what they can afford in terms of mortgage yeah. payments at four percent. And but I I don't think that's a problem at all, and I'll quickly say why, which is that currently New Zealand homeowners are spending on average just 5.8% of their disposable income in Mm -hmm. servicing the mortgages on their home. That's because over the last seven or eight years, the Reserve Bank has managed to uh, reduce the highly leveraged lending, you know, the 90, 95, 100% loans. Now it's quite hard to get more than 80%. And of course, when house prices have risen 50% in the last four years, that gives you an enormous amount of equity to play with. And even if house, even if interest rates were to double from two percent to four percent, got to remember too that the banks, for the last ten years, have been lending with what they call their affordability ratios in place, mm-hmm. which are that they assume when they lend you money that you will have to be able to pay that mortgage when the interest rate is at six and a half percent. So if they look at how much money you get in every week how much you spend on food and trucks and whatever, and they will work out, the bank will work out how much money you got left over, and then they make the assumption that if the mortgage on, mortgage rate was 6.5%, could you pay it? And if you can't, you don't get the mortgage. So what that says is that our homeowners are perfectly fine if interest rates go up to 4%. The housing mm, market won't mm. fall, over, fall over and neither will the banks, and people shouldn't be quite so worried about that. The bigger worry. So you're point. not really worried about inflation, Bernard? Not, not to the point where it would, you know, crash the housing market. It's possible. And what, about inter- what about internationally, Bernard? So yeah. What about so this, you know, importing inflation effectively. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day who was talking about the level, the, the cost of um, containerized, you know, containers now has gone have gone up dramatically, and that then becomes a cost for virtually everything that's imported to, to New Zealand. Yeah, it's true. Container, container rates between China and New Zealand have trebled or quadrupled in the last year. Mm. And that's if you can get the container. Often it's in, just physically impossible to get them. And all around the world, you're seeing that higher cost. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Containers were stranded in the wrong place when a whole bunch of shipping lines had to stop during COVID. And now, yeah. even if you've got the ship, you can't get the containers for them. There's been a lot of crew who have been stranded and not able to move around. And the most awful thing is there's a whole bunch of crew who've been stuck on the ship for 18 months, not allowed to go home yeah, or get yeah. off the ship. 
And then secondly, a lot of factories and people in the globalised supply chain have become quite nervous about the just-in-time system, as you'd expect. Mm. Uh, they've been caught mm. short with you know disruptions that meant that they suddenly ran out of computer chips or tyres or whatever it was. And so now they're looking to build some resilience back into the supply chains by building up on stocks. So not only do you have factories which are buying all the stuff they need to pump stuff out, they're also buying more than they need uh, to build up some stocks again. And so that's uh, putting real pressure on prices of those components mm. and, and supplies. But, and here's where I'm, I part from most of the economic community, not so much the central banks, though, when I say this is, at the moment, looks temporary. Because those factories in China have not gone away. Neither have the ships or the containers. They will organise themselves within a year or two back to the normal state. In fact, the big shipping lines, because they're making so much money right now, are now looking to build new ships. And, of course, every mm. time they build a new container ship, it's not a small one. <laughs> it just gets bigger and bigger. No, no, that's true. That's true. And but what, so th- those factories... For a minute, Bernard, yep. Sorry, carry on. And those Go factories ahead. that are producing all those goods... And remember, over the last 20 years, there's been effective deflation of um, product prices because of China's entry to the World Trade Organization, the arrival of a billion workers, global labor market, not just from China, but from Eastern Europe, which have uh, effectively driven down the global wage, certainly for factory workers and what used to be called the middle class in the developed world. And those workers are still there. Those factories are still there. Yes, there's disruption right now. But what you w- to have that inflation really take hold, you will need to see wages rise permanently and get into the habit of rising, and you'll need the prices of goods to keep rising. And the other reason why I don't believe the inflation prescription and the worries about inflation is that um, 60% of our economy is actually the services sector. And up until yep. now, most of that services sector has been immune from the deflationary effects of global competition and effectively being disrupted by international competitors. But as we move into the the app economy, increasingly moving into financial services, medical and health, you will see prices driven down there and wages driven down there as those sectors are appified. So I still think there are deflationary winds um, brewing mm-hmm. out there. And yes, for the next year or two, there will be some inflation. In America, it got up to 5% in May, annual inflation. And in New Zealand, it looks like we might get up to around about 3%. But yeah. currently, central banks are saying they think it's temporary and they will look through it mostly. And the Fed, for example, is still not going to put up interest rates for another two years. The Reserve Bank here now looks like it will put up interest rates early to mid next year. We had some very mm-hmm. strong GDP figures this week, which just hold on for it. Talk a little bit about those GDP figures because they, you know, I think every well, several countries are rebounding much, including the UK, the United States, and us are, mu- are rebounding much faster than expected, despite us all being sealed off, or possibly in our case, because we were sealed off. What's that going to feed into? Is it going to feed into higher wages? Is it going to feed? I mean, presumably it's going to continue to support employment as it has. But yeah. everything I hear on everything I hear on the radio is about the difficulty of getting them, get, getting staff. And as you know, as you've written a lot about the, you know, there's a lot of uh, unskilled and semi-skilled migration, or has been historically. No, you're right. Which is um, not going to happen now. No, that's right. I mean, th- there is intense pressure on labour forces, skill shortages all over the place. People starting to do, you know, aggressive things around sign-on bonuses, and you know, there's a lot of churn going on. People are poaching each other's workers, 
And yes, there is some pressure on wages. But you've got to remember, this time around, less than 10% of New Zealand's workforce is unionised. We have one mm. of the least unionised private sectors in the world. And all around the world, unions are much weaker now than they were in the 70s when you did have these wage price spirals. Also, you know, these these platforms, the, the yeah. Ubers and the TaskRabbits and the like, are still there and a lot of those services can be provided at much cheaper mm. prices. So mm. I don't see the wage inflation taking off, even though there is some pressure right now. The, the question of mi- migrants, yes, they're obviously not coming into the border at the moment, but and, and they're probably unlikely to come to here and to other parts of the world within the next year or so. But within the next two to three years, they will. And so that, that global pressure down, or at least to cap, wages will still be there, particularly if, you know, things, there'll be a few ups and downs along the way, which mean that this very fast growth in America, it's looking like like about 5%. We had 1.6% in a single quarter here in in the March quarter, which was double what everyone else expected. Australia's just had had the most stonking set of uh, jobs figures. That's another worry for New Zealand employers in particular is that they risk they'll suck. yeah they risk losing New suck, Zealanders suck jobs over the Tasman yeah because yeah, yeah. not only do you get thirty percent more pay in Australia but you can also now get cheaper rent rents in the CBDs of Sydney Melbourne and Brisbane have dropped fifty to one hundred dollars for the mm. average two mm. bedroom apartment whereas here they've risen a hundred dollars so you're net much better off in Australia and that actually is the big issue for employers here if you want to keep your best workers particularly the ones who have residency, you're going to have to fight not against other employers in New Zealand, but against employers in Australia, who the unemployment rate there fell to 5.1%. So there's not a lot of room left there in Australia. So you're right, mm-hmm. there's plenty of heat in the heat in the economy as we rebound from COVID. I just don't think that those deflationary forces, both in prices of goods and services, particularly services, and in wages have gone away, yet structural issues dragging down on those things is still there. And you've got to remember this week, you know, if everyone was really, truly scared of inflation, you'd see an explosion in bond yields as the world's um, biggest and most liquid financial markets, what I call the true wisdom of the crowds, which is the US 10-year and five-year treasury markets, the US Treasury bond yield fell this week, even though the Fed's mm. starting to talk about increasing interest rates a year earlier than expected. And here's, here's a fun one. So Greece, you know, Greece, basket case of Europe a few years ago, almost took down the euro. It was that bad. Well, this week, the Greek government was able to sell five-year bonds, so i.e. borrow from the market, with a negative interest rate. So mm. investors... Extraordinary. Uh, probably, probably again from Deutsche Bank. That's right. So, you know, before people get too worried about inflation, I just point out that there is this huge savings glut. And one of the really, mm. other, the other big driver for deflation and, and to stop all of that, all of that firewood of all that fresh money printed bursting into flame is that central banks printed the money and bought government bonds. They bought the government bonds off pension funds and banks and wealthy individuals. Those people are in a, are in a mood to basically put that money back in the bank. So about $10 mm. trillion of cash has been printed in the last year by central banks. Of that $10 trillion, about 6 to $7 trillion is now sitting back in a bank account, either in a bank or the mm. banks themselves have accounts with central banks. It's sitting back there. 
And yeah, New Zealand's a, yeah, New Zealand's a perfect example. So when you look at New Zealand households and New Zealand businesses, so this is not the government and it's not banks, New Zealand households and businesses, their term deposits, so money in bank accounts, has has risen from four hundred and sixty billion to fifty sort of five hundred billion in the last year. So the government effectively printed around about sixty billion. And uh, a good 40 billion of that has already been put back in bank accounts by households and businesses. And then when you look at the government itself, it has also put a lot of that cash that it raised in, in bond issues, it has put that cash back with the Reserve Bank. So when you look net at how much money is being printed and whether it's actually been spent in the economy, it's not that much. And that's one of no, the no. reasons why we're not seeing... It's not just being spent on Porsches, Porsches and... Um Double cab utes. That's right. That's right. That's what I'm spending my money on. Ah, yeah. you, you better get in fast because that's the other piece of news this yeah. week is the fee bait scheme, which is yeah. causing some grief. Essentially, talk about culture wars. In New Zealand, we don't have so much culture wars about you know abortion or gun rights or transgender bathrooms. Thank goodness. But uh, we do have them about utes, double and, cab uh, carbon, utes, and carbon emissions. That's right. Yeah. The most effective political attack this week has been from the opposition and the ACT Party, accusing the government of taxing regular hard-working Kiwi tradies by mm-hmm. putting up the mm-hmm. price of their double cab ute so that that money can then be transferred to some latte-sipping, chardonnay-drinking, Tesla-driving, greenie in Greylin. Oh, we've, we are insulting the same people we insulted last week. <laughs> That's right. Oh, carrying other people's, uh, carrying other people's insults. I know, yeah, yeah. Shall we, shall, we move on to, shall we move on to China? Since we, since we, or China and international affairs, or do you want to? Yeah, no, I I think there was some, I've had a good old go. I think it was really interesting uh, to see in the Biden-Putin discussion some of the real issues that are between the West and Russia, in particular Ukraine, which again asked again Mm -hmm. for NATO membership. That didn't last very long, but that gives you an idea of the tensions that are there. I mean, there's still a low running war going on. A civil war. Yeah. Of well, what was weird? What was weird about that for me was Zelensky, the, the the Ukrainian president, tweeted in the middle of a NATO meeting that 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 NATO was that NATO was um, inviting Ukraine to prepare for membership, and of course that caused an incredible stink. And really, what it turned out was that that NATO had not changed its position at all, which is that it is in conversations with Ukraine about this, but it hasn't hasn't happened. And of course. Just coming, coming a day or so before the meeting with Biden summit with Putin, you know that was an incredibly provocative and deliberately provocative thing, and put NATO in a very difficult position. But it was interesting, Bernard. I think also to see Biden talked about how Russia was getting squeezed by China, which I'm not certain that I actually believe because Putin and and Xi Jinping have have you know found several areas in which they in which they agree and work together. But there was this push to have NATO consider China as a as a risk. Yeah, the North Atlantic, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, mm. essentially saying that China was the biggest security risk in the North Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah, and I and I, you know, we talked a little bit about this before. I, I'm really because it was very interesting to see Emmanuel Macron from France say, "Hang on a minute, you know, this is China is a long way away from from North from the North Atlantic. I'm not absolutely certain about this. And do we? And it, in a funny kind of way, there was something in what in what Macron said, which is similar to what Nanaya Mahuta says, or what's implicit in what Nanaya Mahuta, the New Zealand foreign minister, is saying, which is, do we really want to get into the tiff that uh, the United States and Australia are determined to have with China, or do we have our own agenda here? 
Yeah, it's good to stay a little bit separate, I, I think. And it's it's I think they've got more than enough problems in Europe that, than picking a few fights with China. Although, of course, China is the, the largest trading partner for Europe as well. And mm. the other one, I, I'm talking of you know Bond villains, which Putin definitely is one mm. of those cat strokers. I love the story about Nord Stream Two. You know, I, th- I think there's been yes. at least one or two Bond movies where, you know, th- th- James Bond is flying down some big pipe somewhere in the Baltics. And this is really interesting for me that, you know, even though Europe and Russia seem so far apart, actually, they've just built another really big pipeline, which means that Germany in particular That's right. is dependent on Russia's gas. for Massively. And it's not quite finished yet. And... The American, particularly Joe Mike Pompeo, was trying to get them to stop, you know, which was an extremely brutal sort of attack on, a, on an ally like Germany. But the other thing about Nord Stream, of course, is that, well, two things about it. One is it bypasses Ukraine, which is to Putin's advantage because he won't have to pay, Gazprom won't have to pay trans, mm. transit fees through Ukraine. So he can, you know, again, manipulate Ukraine and turn the power off and that kind of thing. The, the other thing is, of course, there's a, an extraordinary story of, pretty phenomenal dodginess in here, which is the former chancellor uh, of Germany, Gerhard Schroeder, is heavily involved in the negotiations for Nord Stream. And he has long been a, shall we say, conduit to Vladimir Putin since the days when Putin was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg uh, and started his ascent. Yeah, and there's lots to be... Because one of the big problems in um, Germany is that Certain people on the left of politics in West Germany were, were often regularly compromised and infiltrated by the spies of East Germany. Yeah, I think he's been much more compromised by money. Ah, right. Yeah, money and influence, and yeah. you know, he, he is he is well dodgy. Yes. Uh, and there's, there's lots. Just 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 to stress, actually, there is there are lots of written accounts, particularly from Russian authors, about Gerhard Schroeder's invi- and assent with Putin. So it's not just me saying it. Yeah, um, dear lawyers, go ahead. <laughs> That's right. Good. Hey, maybe it's time to open up to our, our regular and uh, loyal. Sure. Loyal if listeners. any of these poor people like Jonathan or Tim or Jay, thank you for being there. Jonathan, hey, Jonathan, have you bought a house yet, or are you still worrying? Yep. Let me just bring in Jonathan. Invite to go speak. Go ahead. I've, I've just done it. Oh, cool. Go ahead, Jonathan. Done it. Have you got uh, a house yet? I haven't had a house yet, but Tim, who's keeping quiet here, went to an auction today and watched a house with an RV from 2018 uh, in Johnsonville, Wellington, with an RV of 660,000, sell for 1.3 million. Bloody hell. Yeah. That wasn't uh, an enjoyable anecdote to hear. And, yeah, it's pretty rough out there. And s- sadly, in yeah. Wellington, it's not going to get much better that quickly because the other big news this week is that the council looked like they've gutted a lot of the medium density zoning in their new um, city plan. This is in response to the government's push to try and get councils to allow more ca- uh, townhouses and low-rise apartments. Of course, you need lots of those in wow. Wellington. And uh, let me, sorry, let me turn that off. That is that is meaning that the extra supply we're expecting in Wellington is not going to happen. And the reason they've gutted the zoning is because the NIMBYs, the NIMBY boomers, have said, no, we don't want those nasty apartments anywhere near us. The great irony is that Geoffrey Palmer, the um, former Prime Minister and, of course, architect of the Resource Management Act, which we're now desperately trying to get mm-hmm. rid of, 
came out with his own personal submission to say that he didn't want any change in his his little neighbourhood and didn't want any medium density apartments near. Of him. course, he doesn't. <laughs> no. So no. you um, might, you might, you, know, you might, it might bring the neighbourhood down. Yeah. So that's unfortunately the problem there, guys. That that the people who benefit most from a shortage of housing supply are the ones who fight hardest against plans to increase the housing supply. Yeah. They would, of course, never say it's because of uh, self-interest. They, they would say they're protecting their property rights to not have anyone look over them or block the sun. But the end result is that we don't have enough housing supply. Mm. And that's we'll see because it's quite possible that the councillors could overrule the, the officials who've um, t- made these zoning decisions. We'll find out in the next couple of weeks. In many ways, it's a replay of the big battle we had in Auckland in 2016 when the Auckland Unitary Plan went through and we had various extraordinary meetings where rich white old people yelled from the back of the room uh, yeah. to, to stop. The, um, the same rich white well, old people who wouldn't pay wouldn't pay for the water pipes and everything to be fixed. Ex- exactly. But when you, when you hear a story like that about a, about a house doubling with dub, doubling in its government valuation in a, in a couple of years, do you, does that make you think that first home buyers, for example, should wait, should rent, or pile in somehow. Yeah, if there's anyone from the Financial Markets Authority listening, this is not financial advice. This is um, my view, the sort of thing that I would say to my daughters or, or friends. If they're in a position where it's going to take them a long, long time to save their own money to get a deposit um, to buy a house, and and that they are hoping that house prices fall so they can then afford to buy one when they wait. Uh, I would say do not depend on house prices falling because mm. politicians and the Reserve Bank have no incentive to make house prices fall. And all of the conditions that have driven these prices higher are still there. Interest rates remain low. We will have plenty of migration after COVID finishes. And still, councils, as we've seen this week, can find ways to not invest in infrastructure because fundamentally, the people who vote in council elections and in government elections do not want their money to pay for other people's mm. infrastructure or well-being. It's a, so we should basically rent before we move to Sydney and Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, just just go for Sydney and Melbourne now. It's warmer there as well. It's been bloody cold and. In Wellington today. Uh, Yeah, and this is the sad thing that we all know the problem. We know the solutions, but we just cannot get the median voter over the line to say, yeah, okay, because it might hit their main financial asset. And I had these extraordinary um, public conversations in in the post-cabinet press conferences with Jacinda Ardern at the end of last year where we we were asking her, why don't you do something to drive down house prices? And she said, well, I can't do that. My job is to mm. protect the assets, the main assets of New Zealanders. And my mm. job is to ensure we continue on with house price of inflation of around 3 4%. Well, what that does is sentence those people who are locked out of the market on their own steam to uh, never being able to own a home. Because if you have house prices rising 4% and incomes rising at 5% on average, it's 50 to 100 years before you get to an affordable level. Mm-hmm. And You're sec- peddling. Yeah. yeah, and essentially what she's saying in the place we're in now is that if you have not got a parents with money or family with essentially housing that they can suck some equity out of and give to you for a deposit to, so that you can gear up and get your foot on the ladder, as they say, then your only choice is to marry into it. 
we should have in New Zealand a particular version of Tinder with a checkbox that asks the question, do your parents do you own have a house? Property? Yeah, yeah. I think that's an excellent idea. I'll, I'll recommend it to them. Hey, Bernard, I think one thing I'd like to maybe close on is something I think is about to happen or a fear is about to happen. And since this is over the horizon, I hope it doesn't. But we saw yesterday the 500 police go into the offices of Apple News in the Apple Daily in Hong Kong, which is wow. the last kind of – it's actually the last pro-democracy, explicitly pro-democracy paper or opposition paper in Hong Kong, its its chief executive has already been arrested, and they went in and got the journalist yesterday. Its assets have been frozen. Now, what I'm worried about is something slightly more significant than that. Although, you know, this is going to have a chilling effect on it, and that's the South China Morning Post, which has, you know, been a beacon of wow. independent and excellent journalism in throughout Southeast Asia, but particularly in Hong Kong for many years, and is in fact owned by Jack Ma, not, I believe, by Alibaba, but mm, by Jack Ma personally. directly, the founder of Alibaba. Jeff and given style. that he is yeah. now, yeah, and given that he is now somewhat persona non grata with the Chinese Communist Party, it wouldn't surprise me to see a really important institution like the South China Morning Post start to get eroded or be eroded. It must be very difficult to work there right now. So I, I think there's a kind of watch the space there. And I, I think it also is going to go beyond media because Hong Kong runs a kind of uh, UK-style justice system and has a lot of foreign judges, a lot of foreign members of the legal profession because it's trying to offer to be a kind of offshore part of with with a kind of UK-style understandable legal arbitration system. And I'm pretty certain that that's going to start getting eroded quite quickly as well, that as these as these sort of democratic elements get chipped away, it's going to become harder and harder to sustain those kind of traditional aspects of Hong Kong. And a lot of those people who are vulnerable in that situation or may have opportunities to move overseas have seen the writing on the wall and a lot of people are, are moving moving out and, and businesses mm. too who depend on that rule of law and, and security rethinking where they go. And you're right, that will be a, a big moment if they do that to the South China Morning Post. The Chinese though are being very clever about this. In the olden days, they would have just, you know, marched in with a bunch of tanks. Now they just go in there and surgically remove the arms of democracy and 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 say nothing to see him move along now. And it's, yeah, I mean, you got to give Xi Jinping and and Putin credit for being actually strategic and carefully careful dictators. And you have absolutely, to, you have to thank the Lord that was not like that. He was chaotic and useless as well as dodgy. What? Well, you you say that, except that of course, you know, his conduct of foreign policy and his and his leadership of the United States as a kind of beacon has also brought us here and has led, led you know, led there to be extraordinary opportunities for people like Putin and and Xi Jinping yeah. to to do what they feel like. Just let, let me let me fin- should we finish, Bernard? But sure. there's a. There's a quote just come up from Putin, which I rather like, actually, which has just been published, where he's saying that the the image of Biden created by U.S. and Russian media of a doddering old man suffering from dementia is, quotes, has nothing to do with reality, close quotes. So he's been able to raise the idea of dementia while while dismissing it and, quotes, he, don't, he doesn't miss anything, close quotes. Right. So he's been able to raise the issue of dementia, knock it down, but also have it raised again. I mean, he's he is Mr. Chaos. He's, he, he lives in chaos. That's right. And he's not that old. You know, he looks fairly healthy. Uh, mm. that, that's the thing that I'm, I'm somewhat surprised at, is that he is 
he is able to do this. And he's been doing it for, what, 25, 30 years or so. And he could go for mm. another 20 or 30 years. Yeah, well, he's got the permission. To, yeah, he's got the, yeah, yeah, he will be there. He is, he is a formidable character. All right, thank you, thank you Bernard. Yes. I mean, anybody, Jay, do you want to ask anything? I'm sorry, before we, we, we you've been sitting there patiently. That's okay. Or Jonathan or Tim, do you want to come back? I did have one question. But, um, sure, Tim, on, please. On, only if we have time. Yeah, go time. for it. Yep, we do. I can ask next time. Yeah, I was wondering about the effect of the increasing house prices in New Zealand having on business investment in New Zealand. Because I, I think I saw the little graph that you posted, Bernard, with the amount of fund lending for investment going way down at the same time that investment in uh, real estate is going up. So how is that going to affect our economy in general? Well, the, the thing about our businesses is they don't actually need money to expand at the moment. And they've built their own models for expansion based on simply employing more people rather than investing in new kit or training or systems. Because they know, just like everyone else, that if you've got some spare capital and you want to invest in something, you certainly don't invest in a business, you're much better off just putting it into residential property because you can leverage it up and it's a guaranteed um, return because the government says they'll never let house prices fall and the Reserve Bank is printing money to pump up the value of those assets. And that's the guts of New Zealand. We are very low investors, percentage of GDP-wise, at the, at the, in the bottom 20% of the OECD when it comes to investing in, in our businesses, our actual businesses. And that's, that's the, the tough thing because if you are in a relatively large business uh, and you have a choice between putting your money into a leveraged investment because you can get a loan from a bank and of course a leveraged investment that's going up is always going to outperform something that's just returning you know, a profit or a dividend and also it's much easier to get lending for that. The other reason we have a problem with this situation where we don't tax capital gains and we make it very easy to leverage up on residential property is that for a lot of small businesses who in other countries would go broke and get scooped up by a you know fast-growing, much larger company that's much more efficient and much more productive and have you know centralised systems and centralised marketing and all of that, where you'd have a lot of M&A activity and where productivity specialists talk about businesses that go up and out, i.e. If, for every 100 businesses that get launched every year, you'd expect 80 of them to fail within the next year. That's just the way small businesses are or should be uh, and certainly what happens overseas. Then you've got another 20 that might stagger on for a bit and then you have four or five that are real rock stars and they'll burst up out of being a small business into being a medium business and of those, you know, maybe one will go on to something much larger. That's the up and out idea. And the 80, the 80 businesses that fail in the first year, they fail, they're gone, they're wound up, and those assets move on somewhere else. In New Zealand, you can start a small business, and it can essentially be failing. It can be a zombie, and you can have that bad year that normally would wipe you out. But in New Zealand, because we're able to borrow against our houses to prop up our small businesses, buy ourselves a lifestyle, we're not seeing the, uh, the same business failure rate or effectively the same progression in the economy towards larger, more efficient businesses. And uh, that's, that's one of the problems we have. Yeah. And until we address this capital gains tax plus leveraged property investment plus too big to fail plus government guarantee for the housing market, it's pretty hard to see it improving, to be frank. 
All right. Shall we shall we close it down there? Yeah. Jay, no. I, I assume you're not coming in. No worries if not. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bernard. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jonathan. That's been a, a great um, Friday afternoon. Thanks again, Peter. Fantastic. And we'll be here again next week, I hope. And um, let's, uh, let's, let's get the sound up. That's not working. But that's all right. I'm Bernard Hickey. We've been with Peter Bale. We've been looking at New Zealand over the horizon on Friday the 18th of June on the Kaka. Thank you very much.